counter uh, came here and we began to use that name for that. We decided to call this exactly what it is, which is a Wednesday night that we study the Bible together. And so the series that we're going to be working through, if you were uh, grabbing something on the table on the way in, um, we're going to be going through a series called Acts of the Apostles Behind the Scenes. And I really do hope and pray that it is going to be helpful for you. Um, I hope that you know this about me, for those of you that uh, have been doing this for a number of years, I hope you know this about me, and I hope it's also true about you, is that we believe in education because we believe that knowing more about God in terms of who he is, is always beneficial. It's always helpful. And sometimes there can be a bit of a question that is raised in regards to education. I loved what Ryan preached on Sunday when he made the statement um, that Nelson Mandela made, which was that education is truly the hope of the world. This, this uh, radical change can exist through education. And I don't believe that. I don't believe education is the cure. I believe Jesus is the cure. And I believe that knowing about him is the way in which we find true life and true peace. So it's about knowing things, but it's not about knowing things for the sake of knowing things. Uh, there is a famous church leader from the 1500s. His name was pretty cool when you just have like a first name, you know. His name was just Erasmus. And Erasmus was asked this question. He is um, one of the reasons why we have what is known as a critical edition of the Greek New Testament, which means he helped bring together a lot of manuscripts so that you and I would have a Greek text that would be translated into the different languages. And so we're indebted to him for lots of different things. He was asked this question, how can scholarly knowledge, how does deep thoughts, deep thinking, how can that be beneficial to a Christian? How does scholarly knowledge facilitate godliness? To which Erasmus responded, he just said, well, why don't you explain to me how ignorance would help? I remember, I can take you to the book where that's written. And I remember thinking, that's a great point. Because you know those people that kind of um, maybe take a shot at, oh, it's just education. We usually don't do that very often if it's about our kids' education. I don't know a lot of parents that tell their five-year-old, yeah, reading's overrated. I don't really get that. I get very few parents, not good ones anyway, that love to say, oh, it's just your ACT, don't worry about it. It's just knowledge. It's usually not. Actually, when it comes to the things that we love, knowledge matters a lot. When it comes to our jobs, when it comes to education needed to get our jobs, we care deeply about knowing things. And so what WNS is, is it is an opportunity for us to focus on that third component, which is the grow piece. And when we talk about grow, what we mean is this, to grow in our understanding of, and then this has to be connected, and therefore obedience to Jesus. To grow in our understanding of, because how would ignorance help, right? Thank you, Erasmus. But it's not just about knowing, but it's also about obedience. It's about responding to who Jesus Christ is. 
Because many of us don't have right thoughts about Jesus, and so our prayers aren't right about Jesus. Therefore, our expectations aren't right about Jesus, and I deal with people all the time, and sometimes it's me, who are angry and mad and put out by God and their life circumstances. And it's interesting because... um, God never promised them any of these things that they expected. God never said anywhere in his word that life would be like X. And yet, because of their misunderstanding, they find themselves making life choices that are based upon an ignorance about who he isn't. And I love to have an opportunity, and it's not all I care about, but just to inject some truth that comes from the scriptures about that. But I just, I never want you to, to, to believe that like what we're really here to do or to learn some things. It's no, ultimately, it's to know the truth about God so that my life might be lived in the overflow or in the shadow of the reality and the truth of who he is. Does that make sense? So if you're not changing, if your life isn't growing in depth and richness, if you're not finding your relationships, which this should be natural, by the way. I know it can be hard, and I know it's gradual. Thank you, Ryan, for teaching us that this it's a gradual thing, but there should be, you come to Wednesday night Bible study, and we study the Word of God, or truths about the Word of God, and then you literally, you go home, and you're beginning to see your, your relationships begin to change, Now, by the way, not always for what we might refer to the better, because sometimes when I realize the truth, um, my relationships get, I love to say this phrase, they get complicated, right? They don't just get better, they get kind of better in a complicated way, because all of a sudden the reality of who God is and the reality of my life in obedience to him, that's going to make, that makes some people upset. It makes some people angry. It makes some people not want to be friends with me when the reality of God changes my life. So it's not always just better in that sense. It can truly get rather complicated. But I say that's okay. Now, now how does all of that fit together? Because I, I think it's important that we always understand, and so it's the very first one, that we get how this whole WNS, our Wednesday night study, what's it designed to do? And it's designed to actually uh, go a little bit deeper than we could ever go on Sunday morning. Uh, that's kind of the way it's, in, it's intended. Um, don't want you to believe that like, the conversation ends when we're done here, because it's not. Would love to continue it. I mean, you, we always say what? If you would like to continue this faith conversation, have you heard me say that before? There'll be people down front that would love to meet with you. And I hope that you take that seriously because it is, it's, it's hard to integrate these things. And there are times I'll be working through, I'm, I'm pretty excited about what we're going to be doing tonight. And one of the reasons why I'm so excited is because it's, a, it, it's something that I think we have lost touch with, which is what, is what is the Christian life really all about? And we get to go to the book of Acts and we're going to do a survey of all of the book of Acts in terms of this idea of conversion. So I have at the very beginning of our handout a definition of conversion. I want you to think about that because that's what we really mean with, hey, are you saved? What we're talking about is a conversion. That's what we mean. Have you been converted is a way. It's not really a language that we usually use. We usually talk about getting saved. But what we're talking about is a conversion. I usually don't do this because I, I, my, um, 
the Bible that we have is, comes originally in Hebrew and in Greek, but sometimes it's good to just go to Webster's Dictionary and just find out what the word means because it really does kind of shape where we come from. Here's what the word convert means. To convert or conversion, which conversion is the act of converting. Here's the definition. To cause to change in form. So like converting one particular substance to another kind of substance, right? That would be called a conversion. If you just Google conversion chart, which I did looking for conversions in the book of Acts, the first thing it gave me were things like the metric system, right? From Fahrenheit to, which when I was growing up in Canada, I remember going through that. Now that's not what I'm talking about. And so there are all these different conversion tables, so I had to get more specific, conversion in the book of Acts. Oh, okay, there's something that's a little more helpful. But it's to change, and think about this, but to change in form. I like that idea, actually. Because we just came through a series where we talked about our identity. There is something that changes in our form, truly. Something radically changes, biblically speaking. Paul talks about having a, a fleshly nature and then now having a spiritual nature. Now we'll still have, a, we'll still have a, a body, right? We'll have a human body. I'll always be a human. That is my species. I'll always be human. But there is a change of form that happens in me. I like this one though, right? A change in character. A lot of the definitions of conversion have to do with religion. A lot of their definitions had to do with like religious conversions. Therefore, to be converted is to change character. That's what Webster says. And we'll see that that actually is even what's expected in the Bible. And then function. I thought that was kind of an interesting one. Change in function. So I was a different form. I had a different character. And I had a different function. And then I believed the gospel. I believed the good news. And the good news is that Jesus Christ has come to save me from my sin by paying that penalty and then to establish a kingdom where he is the king and I am his servant and I get to live now in that kingdom that's the good news the good news isn't I get saved no the good news is Jesus Christ came to die in my place for my sins and establish a kingdom where he is king and I am his servant that's what it means so when we begin to talk about this idea of conversion, where we have really messed it up in our culture, is that we have these categories of lost to saved. And then we ask, how do we do that? How does a person go from lost to saved? And then our great um, um, American ingenuity kind of steps in and says, and we need to do this in as least number of steps as possible. Let's reduce this. That's kind of our culture, right? Let's reduce it to the least common denominator. I remember doing that in math class, right? Getting it down to the least common denominator. Why would you put 50 over 100 where you could just go one over two, a half? Why would you do this? This is more complicated. Let's reduce it down. But the problem is sometimes we can reduce things and we can lose their nature. This is, a, this is an easy one to fix. But when it starts talking about conversion and I begin to reduce lost equals go to hell and saved equals go to heaven. Now all of a sudden, and this is, by the way, I think this is a, a major paradigm in the church in the West. Lost people go to hell, saved people go to heaven. By the way, it's true. 
So now all of a sudden, I just, well, how do I get there? Do I, where do I get that ticket? Is it kind of like flying to Calgary? Do I just, 1-800 number? American Airlines, just get a ticket? Is that all I gotta do? See, and if that is the purpose, if that is the point of conversion, if this, is, if this really is, if these are the, like the same things, they're equal all the way around, then sure. And now all of a sudden, we're not talking about a change in form or a change in character or a change in function. We're just talking about buying a ticket. What does that ticket look like? And so what you're going to find in the book of Acts is there's not like ticket buying. The book of Acts doesn't allow us to, to reduce things like this. The book of Acts goes, yeah, I'm gonna, I'm gonna say some things that as preachers, you're gonna be uncomfortable. I'm gonna describe what a life in obedience to Jesus Christ looks like that doesn't have reductionistic tendencies. If anything, think about this. If Jesus comes into your life and your life gets reduced, that doesn't make, that doesn't make a lot of sense. Jesus doesn't reduce our lives, he expands them. He literally says, I'm gonna show you, I'm the king, and I'm gonna show you what life is like, not so that your life gets smaller, but so that your life gets bigger. I'm gonna show you about how, how I live and how I teach and how I think, and then when you begin to live and think and act like that, how your life becomes bigger and more multifaceted, and you'll actually understand how forgiveness and peace with God then begins to creep out into peace with everyone around us. And so the kingdom of God then begins to spread. So here's the thing I want you to look at. First of all, the need for conversion. We need to believe there is a need for conversion. By the way, this is a major, major, major issue in the world today. Um, there are anti-conversion laws that exist around the world. Okay, anti-conversion laws. Now, by the way, some, some of those I don't actually mind. Um, I remember when we were praying for a group of a people group in India a number of years ago. And they were deciding what religion they would take as a whole people group. The people group was, I think, close to 200 million people. And they were thinking about giving up on Hinduism, and one of the options was Christianity. Yeah, we're just going to throw it up for a vote, and we're going to convert. And it was kind of like up in the air for a while. They decided to stay Hindu, by the way. But it was up in the air for a while. And I remember kind of praying, wow, I don't know how this is going to happen. How do you convert 200 million people like at a conference and make a decision? I don't even understand how that works, right? But when you, begin to, when you begin to think of this conversion thing, there, the India is one of those countries that has anti-conversion laws. And one of the reasons why is because missionaries come in, not just Christian missionaries, but missionaries come in and say, hey, you need water? Why don't you accept Jesus? We'll give you water. Hey, you need like help like feeding your kids? We'll, we'll help feed your kids if you become a Christian. And, and by the way, it never looks like that when we do it. I say that a little bit tongue-in-cheek, right? So it's, it's interesting that when you talk about this need for conversion, there are sometimes walls that go up in society going, I don't think people need to be converted. To even to say to someone, imagine saying to someone in our culture, in Stillwater today, you need to be converted. Who are you to tell me what I need? Who are you to judge me? A lot of this anti-judgment talk that exists in our culture, how dare you judge me, has really like dampened any kind of conversations about even a need for conversion. But I want you to realize like in the Bible, particularly in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, John, particularly in the book of Acts, 
This is the mindset that I need you to see. The mindset in the book of Acts, and, and by the way, I'm not asking you to just buy this. If, if you can read the book of Acts and say, Jim, I don't see where you're getting that, we can have that conversation. But the mindset in the book of Acts is this. Everyone who does not know who Jesus Christ is, is lost. Everyone who is not in the kingdom is outside of the kingdom. And therefore, instead of receiving the blessings of the king, will receive his judgment. But our king is just, and our king is loving, and our king is gracious, and our king died for us. So we need to get out there, and we need to tell people that truth. Because if we don't tell people that truth, like it matters eternally. So that when my mother-in-law is diagnosed with cancer, it's not just something that we're just telling ourselves. It's a real truth that when mom dies, she will enter from this life into the next life because she knows who Jesus Christ is, And that makes death truly not that bad. Actually, there's a deep sense in which Andrea and I long for her to experience what we long to experience, which is life with Jesus Christ, right? So there's there's a sense in which that is going on. But man, if she didn't know Jesus, we'd be approaching this completely didn't matter, different, different way, wouldn't we? There's a need for her to have Christ. She has Christ and therefore, whew, okay, we can, we, we can. I mean, we're still... Don't want her to be in pain. We're going to miss her. We get all of that. But man, we're, we're, not, we're not freaking out. And then you can like go from a hospital room like that to a hospital room where you're a grandpa. And now all of a sudden, I'm looking at this. Everybody's, oh, she's so cute. And my son, in typical Jim Johnson fashion, said, yes, and she needs Jesus. For if she just never knows who Jesus Christ is, then she is just a child of iniquity. So he's saying this as he's holding his little girl that's a day old. His wife looks at him like Andrea looks at me. Are you crazy? No, he's actually telling the truth. Like little Heidi May. She never knows who Christ is and she decides to have life without him. Does Heidi May need Jesus? Now I'm not talking about, yeah, and if we don't baptize her tonight and something, that's not what I'm talking about. But if Heidi May grows up and decides to not live for Jesus Christ, is that like, ah, it's just her choice. Does Heidi May need Jesus? Yeah. Like everybody needs Jesus. So there is in the book of Acts, this assumed, there is a need for conversion. There is a need. And here's the interesting part. It's not just this kind of need, which is what Americans are obsessed with, what the West is absolutely obsessed with. Heaven, hell, heaven, hell, heaven, hell, heaven, hell. And Paul says, no, actually, it's not just a heaven, hell dynamic. There is so much more. And so one of the reasons why many Christians don't experience the fullness of the Christian life is because they're waiting for it on the other side when they finally get to heaven. That's when life, that's when life is going to begin. Like right now, I'm just doing my thing. But then when I get to heaven, that's, that's kind of what my salvation is for, is to get me to heaven. No, it isn't. There is a need. The second thing that we're going to see is what is the purpose Why is God saving us? Some people think it's to go from heaven to hell. Others think it's to go from death to life. We'll see this phrase in the book of Acts. Paul says this when he's talking about his own conversion. He says this, that I am come to proclaim people the good news of Jesus Christ, the gospel, so they they would leave the kingdom of darkness and enter into the kingdom of light. That's why Paul says he's preaching the gospel. So I just want to ask you an honest question. When you go to an OSU football game and you see people and you can rightly assume, without being judgmental, you can rightly assume that they're not followers of Jesus Christ. Do you just ache in your soul 
because they are living in the kingdom of darkness and not the kingdom of light? Or do you just go, oh, as you cowboys. Which one? Which one? I I usually do this one. Because they look happy and they're getting educated. When, when When you look at the people of the world who don't know who Jesus Christ is, do you just ache because not just that they're going to, but they don't get to experience life now. Or do you look at people and go, no, he seems pretty happy actually. She seems pretty content. I really can't imagine like what, what Jesus could really do to make their life that much better. And I really think one of the major problems that we have with conversion is, is this is about the biggest benefit that we can really see And so we're really not in any kind of hurry. And if anything, like adding church to your busy schedule and trying to figure out how you're going to have a kid who plays baseball and be in the youth group is so complicated. So it might be easier to just wait. And that's why when people go to college, they punt their spiritual life, don't they? Because it's just getting in the way. Many of them punt their spiritual life and they'll just, they'll try to pick it up. You know what I mean? We'll just try to get the ball back. If I can just live through college, I'll just kind of, I'll I'll come back around spiritually when I get on the other side of this great time, but I can't see how Jesus is going to help me in college. See, the book of Acts doesn't have that mentality. The book of Acts has wherever Paul goes, and no matter what things look like, these people are living in darkness. And I'll be honest with you, I need to be reminded of that because I look at people who are, seem to be living like good and healthy and productive lives, and I just feel like, I think they're good. Like, I think they're, they're good. And I need, like, the book of Acts to remind me, no, that's actually not true. I, I love to ask this question of myself, and so I'm going to ask it of you. Like, how important is Jesus to your everyday life? Like, when things are going good, not when things are bad. Because I know when things are bad, we need them, right? I know when things are bad, we need them. But what about when things are good, right? How, how much do we really need him then? Or do we just need him? when things are bad. So here's what I want to say to you, and and I'm going to say it, and you're going to go, I knew he was going to say that, but I'm going to say it anyway. The purpose of conversion is to glorify God. That's the purpose of conversion, is to glorify him. See, the book of Revelation is deeply offended by really good people, in a worldly sense, living their lives and not caring that there is a God, not caring about him. And many of those people are probably moral, right? They don't eat their children. um, They don't steal. They don't rob banks and shoot people all the time. I mean, that's not what they do. They're good people. They're really, they're good people. They're just not glorifying God. And most Christians are like, well, that's their choice. Really, we live in a free country. Which, by the way, I'm grateful that we do. (laughs) I really am. But the, the book of Acts the apostles look at the world that they are walking into. And I just need to say this. Remember where it begins in the book of Acts? Ryan's been preaching on this. Where, where does it begin? What city? Jerusalem. Like that's a religious city. That's a city that loves Yahweh. That's a city, I mean, I was there not that long ago and everywhere we went, there were like people, like religious people, like religious people that are actually aiming their prayers in the direction where I aim mine with a devotion, many of them with a devotion that is greater than mine. 
And the Apostle Paul was one of those people. And he needed to be converted. You know that? Peter and James and John and Matthew and Bartholomew and Nathaniel and okay, the rest of the disciples, all of those men walk into the temple area and all they see is a group of people who need Jesus. And interestingly enough, when we're kind of going in and around our day, we don't have that same earnestness, that same eagerness. And it's interesting because even when, I, yeah, I really should care about people more. Now, I'm not asking you to do that, actually. The only, I had to learn this kind of backwards because I, I really did start loving people and caring for people and caring for people. And then I found out how bad people are. And I realized, so why am I doing this? And then God said, for me, really gave me an amazing sermon called 10 Shekels in a Shirt that helped me see that. I'm grateful for the preaching of a wonderful man by the name of Paris Reedhead. Just Google 10 Shekels in a Shirt, Paris Reedhead. Listen to that sermon. It's so helpful. And then I began to realize that all of this, that the purpose of evangelism, that the purpose of conversion is that God might be glorified in the universe like he intended in the garden. That's, that's, it. that's what it's about. And, and we really do love people. I love our, um, our missionary to Ghana, and here's what he says. He says that to give starving people a bologna sandwich, and he's from Africa, so he's allowed to say this, to just give starving Africans bologna sandwiches and not give them Jesus is just cruel. To walk into a village in northern Africa and feed starving people and never tell them about Jesus is just mean. I, I appreciated that. By the way, take a bologna sandwich when you go because they could use one. But don't leave without telling them about Jesus. Do not leave without telling them about Jesus. Purpose of conversion. Last, the scope of conversion. I'm gonna say this rather quickly. The, scap, the scope of conversion is truly every aspect of our lives. Like I want you to just realize that to be converted, to become a follower of Jesus, that there is no stone unturned in your life. There is no area of your life that is out of bounds or that is not touched or overwhelmed or flooded by the presence of the Holy Spirit or the guidance of his word. There's no way to get around this. So I don't have a life. This is why conversion, things like baptism, is death. We are buried in his death. We are raised to walk a new life. Not pretty much the same life, except now we're not allowed to say the bad words. That's not conversion. It's not, well, now your Sundays are going to be a little busier. That's not conversion. Conversion is a change of form and character and function. And here's the, here's the, the more beautiful part of it. And in no way do I believe that conversion is, and then you will all become pastors like me. No, sometimes that's where we get into trouble. We, we just go, so you're telling me I can't own a business? So you're telling me I can't continue to be a school teacher? So you're telling me I can't continue to be? No, 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 no. Like, actually, this is the beautiful part of it, is that, I mean, all of our lives, as God completely envelops all of them, everything changes, and then he keeps us, for the most part, like where we are, so that we can be salt and light there. We'll see that in the book of Acts. When the conversion comes, and then all of a sudden persecution happens, those business owners and school teachers, those, those people, they start scattering everywhere and then they teach school like a Christian would and they run businesses like a Christian would and they, they, they do all these things as Christians would and now all of a sudden the world can't contain this. The world can't stop this anymore. 
and conversion continues to happen. So the scope of conversion, since it's the kingdom, is absolutely every aspect of our lives. Well, let me run through two quick accounts of what, the, what, what this conversion idea looks like in terms of where Matthew and Mark and Luke and John get their ideas from. It's the teachings of Jesus Christ. The first one I want you to look at is Matthew chapter 28. I got it in your notes. Matthew chapter 28, the famous Great Commission. Here's Matthew's account of what Jesus tells the disciples to do. He says, make disciples of all nations. Okay, the word go there is emphasized. Let's make sure we have it right. Again, if you, this is where education can be really helpful. It doesn't say go. It just doesn't. Now, I know your translation may say that, but if your translation is really paying attention, it should say this. As you're going, it's a participle. It's not a command, go. It's actually a participle. Hey, as you guys are going, because I know you're going to be going. Like I do, I know you're going to be going. As you are going, command, make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teach them to obey or to observe all that I have commanded you. To observe is to obey. So notice the scope. I want you to, I want you to, all the nations, and I want you to, to, to have them like obey everything that I've commanded. How many of you like have, are really kind of picking and choosing the commands of Jesus that you want to obey and then the ones that you're not really sure about? The ones that are culturally like insensitive, the ones that are just too, too, too close to home, the ones that seem to, I, I, I've, I've used this for years, that's just not really me. <laughs> I mean, I, I really have been convicted over the last year and a half that like my personality, which will always be Jim, still needs to be Jim, but like a Jesus version of Jim. And I just know a lot of Christian people that use their personality as like a crutch to still be like a rather sinful, selfish person. You know people that do this? Okay, do you know me? Because I do this sometimes, actually. That's just me. You know, I'm grateful for a wife who goes, well, maybe it shouldn't be, right? I mean, that shouldn't be you. Maybe you should be something else, like Jesus more. So... I want you to observe, I want you to teach people to observe all that I have commanded. Here's how Luke says it in Luke chapter 24. Luke, in his commissioning, Jesus speaking here, he's talking about what's going to happen. Repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all the nations. Repentance, we'll talk about what that is tonight. Repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be preached, proclaimed to all of the nations. So when you combine the text in Matthew and Luke predominantly, what you really see is that you see when there is this natural living, and I want you to hear this, this is this natural engagement with culture around us, that this is what we're going to see in the, in the, in the text that we're going to look through tonight. We're going to see this. We're going to see someone needed to explain or to preach or to teach like who Jesus Christ is and what the gospel is. Because people need to know that. People need to know the good news. People need to know the gospel. They just can't get it by looking at the stars or looking at a tree. They need to hear that Jesus Christ has come. The next thing that you're going to see is that there's going to be some kind of response that looks like faith, that, which by the way, another word I could use for faith, this is why I wanna add words to this, not reduce it. You're gonna see like faith or trust or um, obedience, or allegiance. All of these words are what the gospel writers, what Luke, what, what the early Christians, what they're going for. I want you to have faith in. I want you to trust. I want you to have allegiance to. I want you to have obedience. See, and when we reduce it to um, making a simple statement and getting wet, 
If we want to reduce it to making a simple confession and then a, a small little prayer, we're not getting what all the book of Acts is describing because you're going to find that the book of Acts just doesn't operate like that. Like so many of our evangelism uh, uh, practices have actually been developed for the church to continue on its way. This is my assessment, so you can, you can disagree with this. But I really believe that a lot of our methods of evangelism have been designed so that we can still go on about our lives in the way that we always wanted to and never have like the, the, the confusion and the complication of the fullness of the gospel that gets in our way. And so how can we convert people who we never really meet, but we, they have a radio? How do we do that? Well, I'll tell you, we just need to read in the book of Acts, kind of dilute it to the, to the smallest common denominator, and then I think that'll work. And a lot of our, and then we offer them like this assurance, which can, deeply concerns me. Because like, you're not gonna see that in the book of Acts, this kind of empty assurance. You're not gonna see it. Now, you'll see confidence and you'll see boldness in what the Holy Spirit is going to do. And as you endure, that God will never forsake you or leave you. You'll, you'll see that. But you'll never just see this, hey, and by the way, you can go on about your life and know that everything's taken care of. You're just not going to find that in the book of Acts. I've read it. It's not there. And the book of Acts sees this whole life response to the good news of who Jesus Christ is. So you're going to see faith and obedience and allegiance. You're going to see repentance, right? Which is a turning from our ways. It is a mind change fundamentally. And I, I still think that one of my biggest problems, and you can tell me if this is you as well, one of my biggest problems is, is that I still kind of generally believe that I know what's best. And Jesus can come in and kind of fill in the gray areas of my life. But I really got most of it figured out. And Jesus is saying, yeah, that's your problem. Is I need you to kind of erase the board for a moment. And I want to take you back to square one, which is I'm king and you're not. Because I can make fun of the God is my co-pilot idea, but if I'm really just honest in those dark, struggling moments of my soul, I kind of live like that more often than I ever want to admit. The gospel says, no, I need you to live in this constant state of repentance this constant state of recognizing what the Holy Spirit is saying and then you're gonna submit to it, Jim Johnson. You understand me? Because you're not the king. So you're going to hear me speak to you and you're going to respond to me. I'm, I'm not here to, at your bidding. I'm not here as your servant God in that way, right? He is a serving God, but not in that way. And I, I, sometimes I, I get the order mixed up. And then I wonder why God's not doing what I, because I told him to do it, told him yesterday. And uh, I think you forgot who you're talking to. So let's run through these. And if you don't mind, I'm gonna read a lot of scripture tonight, okay? I wanna read these scriptures to you. And then I wanna kind of emphasize some of the key words that I would recommend. I got them all circled and underlined in my notes. But I want you to just kind of see the kind of the key words that describe what's going on. So these are all the major conversion sections. I, I think maybe even all the conversion sections and then the entire book of Acts. Beginning in Acts chapter 2, and I want to set this up for you because we're going to be preaching on it here uh, in two weeks, and it is in Jerusalem where there is a whole group of people who love Yahweh, who are being faithful to the Ten Commandments, who think everything is fine, and they just killed Jesus 50 days ago, but he raised 
47 days ago. And so now all of a sudden they're hearing this message, but these are good people who think everything is fine with God and just, why are you complicating things? Peter and James and John and man and and blah, blah, blah. Well, they preached this incredible message in the beginning of Acts, Acts chapter two, beginning in verse 36. Peter gets to the conclusion of his message He says this, let all the house of Israel therefore, so remember these are religious people, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ. Who? This Jesus whom you crucified. He's the king. And now when they heard this, they were, and these are conversion things. So I want to even tell you this so you'll be able to know what to look for to see if conversion is happening in the people, in your children, and you. I mean, honestly, without trying to freak anybody out, you might want to ask yourself tonight, have I been converted? Might that be a bad question to ask? Here's how you know. Look at this. When they heard the gospel, they were cut to the heart. And they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? This idea that we can't do anything is such a misdirected idea. But just realize that anything that we do is to, to deal with what God has done for us. Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, you need to repent. You need to change your mind. You need to turn from your wicked ways. And you need to be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. Like you have a sin problem before God. He's not afraid to say that. And by the way, in that audience, they actually believed that there was a sin problem. But that's what you need to do. And then you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and your children and for all who far off, because he's been quoting the book of Joel, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. So God is actively involved in the conversion process. Don't think you're out there witnessing to your neighbors or the people at work and like God hasn't been already involved in this situation. I love that that reminder to me. There's nowhere I can go with the people that I talk to. God isn't already there doing a work. No one. No one. No one. God calls to himself. And then, I love this, with many other words. So just when you say, man, these preachers, yeah, I know, but all the way back to Peter. And then with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying what? Save yourselves, which is interesting because we say, yeah, we can't save ourselves. Well, we can save ourselves if you understand the context, which is you need to do something. You need to repent and be baptized, every one of you, for the forgiveness of your sins. Save yourselves. I've given you this good news. You need to respond to this. That's what Peter's saying. Save yourselves from this crooked generation. And so those who received his word, see, what do you do? You have to receive the word. So most people, I mean, are like thinking about the word, kind of. Um, they're just passively having the words go through their head. But you're going to see this phrase quite a bit. It's a simple word for, it's not like this deep theological word. It's just lumbano. It means to receive. <laughs> so it's not, I wish I could say, in the, let me tell you how deep this word is. No, sorry. It's not really a deep word. It just means to take. They received it. That man, that, I'll tell you, that just hit me. How many people do you think are in here on a Sunday morning and they're not really like receiving? It's kind of going through the motions. Have you ever been? I've been that. That's been me. But no, the people who are converted, they received his words, they were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Wow. 
beginning in Jerusalem. Well, we're going to fast forward a little bit. Now, you might think this is strange, but the next major conversion that we see, although we do see um, some summary statements between here and chapter 8, Luke saying, and, and, and God added to their number a number of priests who became obedient to the faith. So you will see some more conversions, 5,000 being added here. and So you, you will see that, but not in terms of a massive proclamation and then people coming to faith. The next major one that we actually see is in Samaria. Now, that's good because what did Jesus say? Beginning in Jerusalem, going to Judea, and then to Samaria. We know Samaria is not a really friendly place. But notice how the conversion of the Samaritans looks. Acts chapter 8, this is kind of a general, um, they go to Samaria and they preach the gospel generally to a group of people. It says, and they paid attention to him. And by the way, this is to a bad guy. This isn't quite the disciples yet. They paid attention to him um, because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. So that's Simon who's about to get converted in verse 11. We're in verse 11, Acts 8, verse 11. But when they believed Philip, so they're paying attention to Simon. He's evil, he's a sorcerer. But when they believed in Philip as he preached the good news about the kingdom of God, notice what he's preaching about. Not just, you're gonna go to hell. Don't go to hell. He's preaching about the kingdom of God. Like there's a kingdom that's coming. You want to be a part of it? Like it's amazing. Like your whole life is going to have meaning and purpose. Your form and your character and your function is going to be filled with purpose. Preach about the kingdom of God. And in the name of Jesus, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself, that's the one that they were already paying attention to, the one that could do magic. Even Simon himself believed And after being baptized, he continued with Philip and seeing signs and great miracles performed, even he, their meaning, Simon, was amazed. So we're going to see this quite a bit, and we'll have a whole session that we're going to be talking about it, but baptism becomes this very normal and very natural rite of invitation and initiation into the Christian circle, the Christian community. It's a, it's, it's a way that we're, we're going to see, and like I said, I think next week, right? Yeah, baptism in the New Testament world. We're going to go back and look at how it fits into the entire New Testament world. So the Jews would practice this in what was known as mikvah. They would, they would cleanse themselves ritually, and there were these huge baths just outside the temple area. But what we actually see here is that, you're, and you'll see it in the book of Acts, that baptism becomes this marking This outward marking, which don't be surprised, God's always into these ceremonies and this outward marking of a life that is connected to Jesus Christ. And I'm just gonna say this really quickly and we'll unpack it more next week. I love to ask people, like I know that we need to put our faith in Jesus Christ, obviously, and it's what Jesus did for us, not even my faith that saves me. It's what Jesus did for me and me, I accept it by faith. I don't accept it by being a good person. I accept it by faith that Christ died for me. That's the idea that I cannot earn my own salvation, that I can't, in that sense, save myself. But then I love to ask people, can you think of anything that I believe God may have given to us that would help us experience the joy of of connecting and being united with Christ's death, burial, and resurrection? And I get this from everybody. Well, that baptism thing would work. Oh, yeah. Again, God knows what he's doing. And so you're going to see this over and over and over again. So later on in the book of Acts, when Philip meets an Ethiopian eunuch, 
a man who is not allowed to be at the temple. A man who, because of the choices that he has made uh, to, be, to not be able to have children so that he could be part of a, of, a, of a culture, the Old Testament taught that he will never be allowed to be in. And it says, by the way, that he was up at the temple to worship. Well, we know he couldn't get very far. So basically, he's standing on the outside wondering, could I get into this group? That's what he's wondering. He's reading this amazing psalm or this amazing text in the book of Isaiah about this suffering servant. And now him and Philip get into a conversation and the eunuch says to Philip, about whom, talking about Isaiah 53, that's Jesus, about whom I ask you, does the prophet say this, about himself or about someone else? And then Philip opened his mouth and beginning with this scripture, he told him. So proclamation, he didn't just, well, we're gonna be friends for a while. And then hopefully someday you'll ask me, oh, why are you so friendly? Will you invite me to church? <laughs> Literally, I love this. He says, he told him the good news about Jesus. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water. And then the eunuch said, see, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? Why would he say that? Must have Peter, or sorry, Philip is already having this conversation with him about what Jesus Christ has done and what's happening in Jerusalem. And, and, and you need to hear this. The eunuch has been told, because if even you read in the book of Isaiah, the eunuch will no longer say, I'm just a dry reed. But all of a sudden he will have, think about this, you know, I don't want to do this if I have to, if I don't have to. Can everybody just nod when I say, do you know what a eunuch is? Everybody just do this. Okay, good. So the eunuch will have generations after him. That's what Isaiah promises. When this one comes, when the Messiah comes, the eunuch will no longer be cut off. The eunuch will no longer be alone. He will have children. And then the eunuch says, there's some water. Can I get baptized? He's asking. I've been told I can never be in this group. Can I be in? Can I be in? What is to prevent me from being baptized? And I love this. He commanded the chariot to stop and then they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, the spirit of the Lord carried Philip away and the eunuch saw him no more and he went on his way rejoicing. So we're gonna see. That's kind of how conversion happens. The next one. Saul of Tarsus. Now, I've, I've included this in three different sections. Paul tells his conversion, or sorry, Luke records it in nine, and then Paul recounts it when he's in prison in chapters 22 and 26 in the book of Acts. So I'm comprising them all together when we deal with Saul of Tarsus. Here's what his conversion looks like, how Luke describes it. Chapter nine, beginning in verse 17. So Ananias departed, so he's already encountered Jesus on the Damascus road. Ananias was told to go to talk to him. So Ananias departed, entered the house, that would have been where Saul was staying. Laying his hands on him, he said, brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. That's what he talks about. Now, I, I want to say this because so often in the book of Acts, we need to realize so much else has been said. So much else is going on. That's how the eunuch can say, hey, here's water. Why can't I be baptized? Because the conversation's going. I love that statement in Acts chapter 2. And with many more words, Peter spoke to them. So Luke is giving us snippets. So to then have a reductionistic tendency when Luke is already giving us snippets, do you realize where that's going to get us if we don't understand how the scriptures come together? Real serious confusion. So when you look at this, we see he was saying, I came so that you might have the Holy Spirit. Immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he, uh, and he regained his sight. And then he rose and was baptized and taking food, he was strengthened. 
Doesn't mention anything about repentance, doesn't mention anything about confession, doesn't mention anything about a number of things. It just says that he was told he would receive the Holy Spirit, he got baptized, he ate some at lunch. In chapter 22, he goes on to explain it in a little bit, uh, kind of a broader spectrum, beginning in verse 14. And he said, this is Paul now speaking, the God of our fathers has, has appointed you to know his will. Actually, this is Ananias speaking. To know his will, to see the righteous one, and to hear a voice from his mouth. For you will be a witness to him, to everyone of what you have seen and heard. And now, why do you wait? So this is Ananias speaking. Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins. One of the things I'm hoping this book of Acts does is helps us reclaim some of this really cool biblical language that we don't really talk about, like save yourselves or wash away your sins because our theology, when we don't think about it and we don't go back to the Bible, we can begin to stumble over it. Can you wash away your sins? telling you the bible says yes now how that happens obviously you know there's nothing super about the water there right guess where we get it the fountain right but this is the kind of language ananias guess what he meant by and this is what i want you to do i want you to be baptized washing away your sins and look i look how this comes right on the heels of it calling on his name one thing I love about the idea of conversion is we like break it down in these really weird moments in these, when did you become a grandpa? And I, I love this because people say, is she here yet? I want to go, yes, she's here. She's still on the inside of her mother, but Heidi is here. Heidi's been here for a long time. Nine months Heidi's been here. Don't act like she just showed up yesterday from Mars. She's been here. We do, we do believe that, right? Like she's here. And now she's on the outside here. So now I can hold her here. She's always been here. This kind of thinking through about what birth looks like and what conversion looks like will help us understand what's happening when we're sharing our faith with other people or with children. When we see, when we get so afraid to say, oh, I don't know if we should say that we're washing away our sins. Because that makes it sound like we're, I'll give you a real nice fancy term, um, baptismal regenerationists. There are, there are a group of people who wrongly believe that it is the baptismal waters that do the work. That doesn't make any sense to me theologically. It doesn't make any sense to me at all, okay? And so because there are people that have this really, I would say, very uh, not well thought out idea, we're now afraid to give this statement. And then we miss, I'm telling you, we miss telling young people that the blood of Jesus Christ can make them clean, and just the joy of, uh, I still remember uh, Mrs. Moses, um, truly, that was her last name, Mrs. Moses, and I baptized her. I think she was 148 when I baptized her. She was really old. And uh, when she came up out of that water, it was like her, her sin, she was talking about how her sins had been washed away. And I want to say, well, no, actually, we're, this is, we're not really doing anything here. This is more just a ritual developed. Yes, ma'am. That's what I said. Yes, ma'am. Because I can still see her, that water just pouring off of her. But we know, right, that it was just her way of being united with Christ. Read Romans 6. This is how Paul talks. This is how these guys talk. I love this. Chapter 26, beginning in verse 16, he says this. Um, again, dealing with the speech that Ananias is giving him. Rise, stand on your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose to appoint you as a servant and a witness to the things which you have seen in me and those in which will I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you 
Why is Paul being sent? Look at this, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God, that they might receive forgiveness of sins and be placed among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to this heavenly vision, but I declared first to those in Damascus, which where he was going. So he gets converted. He starts preaching like as soon as he's converted. First to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem, and then throughout the region of Judea, and also to the Gentiles. What? That they should repent and turn to God. And then here's another thing I I wrote down underneath this. We don't tell people they need to do this. Performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. One of the great signs of conversion in the Bible is us performing deeds in line with our repentance. Now, I believe that that is not a way in which we get saved, but it sure is an amazing picture and a, a great confirmation that I have been saved. You see the difference? I believe a lot of Christians don't really feel saved because they have no deeds that are in line with their repentance. They don't have any. Now, God is the one, I promise you, I'll never be able to give like a final statement one way or the other. God is the only one that can give final statements, okay? But I love this because when we, when we tell people, oh yeah, no, you're not saved, by, not saved by what you do, so you can kind of do whatever you want. Now, I'm not recommending you do whatever you want, but I just want to let you know you can kind of do whatever you want. But again, I'm not recommending, that's how we talk. It is, it's how we talk to our children. Are you kidding me? No, I mean, I get it. Like I've had four children that have made mistakes and we need to remind them that God's grace is so much greater than their sin. And he is far more loving than they could ever imagine. And in the midst of that, son, I need to tell you that you need to repent and turn to God. And that you need to start performing deeds in line with your repentance. If not, then we need to go back to step one. And you need to repent and turn to God and perform deeds in line with your repentance. But it doesn't say you need to act as though you're saved and then you're saved. No, no, no. What is it? Repent and turn to God. Call on his name. Wash away your sins. And then after that happens, what do you do? We now perform deeds that are in line with our repentance. If not, what do you do? You don't just perform deeds. You go back to step one. Let me tell you about the gospel again. That's why the answer is always the gospel. The answer is not perform deeds. No, no, no. The deeds is the result. The beginning of our solution is the gospel. Can I tell you about Jesus and what he has done? Can I tell you about your sin and your alienation from God and those around you? Can I tell you about the kingdom of darkness and the power of Satan in your life? Now, all of a sudden, hearts turn. Sins are washed away. Allegiance is sworn to your savior, this king that died for you. And now, all of a sudden, see, to me, it's, um, it's, it's complicated, but I have seen, you might, I wish I could show you more of them, but there are a number of deeds that I do in my life that are truly a sign that I'm very aware that Jesus Christ has died for me. And none of them saved me. But every one of them is proof that I'm saved. You get it? That's how the the book of Acts is going to talk like that. You better buckle up. Chapter 10. We're going to be dealing with some Romans here. While Peter was still saying these things, so he's still preaching. By the way, I love this. The Holy Spirit doesn't wait till Peter's done. The Holy Spirit doesn't go, oh, this is St. Peter. I'll just wait here till he's done. I love this. While Peter's saying these things, the Holy Spirit falls on those who heard the word. And the believers from among the circumcised group, those are the people that are with Peter, who had come with Peter, were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on Gentiles. 
Because by the way, God doesn't ask for our permission on who he calls. <laughs> I just love that reminder. The book of Acts is gonna be God saves anyone he wants to save. So it, it, God's plan and purpose for converting people is so much deeper and wider and bigger than yours and mine. I love that reminder. So they're all amazed that the Holy Spirit has poured out on these Gentiles, for they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. And then Peter declared, can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have now received the Holy Spirit just as we? And he commanded them, be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. And they said, hey, can you remain for a couple of days? There's a young lady who uh, in Acts chapter 16, beginning in verse 13, is a rather wealthy lady. Her name is Lydia, and she is a dealer in purple cloth, which is how we know there's probably a tremendous amount of wealth that is associated with her. Paul shows up in the city because of the Macedonian dream where a man said, come and preach the gospel over here. And on the Sabbath day, they went outside. Notice the we. This is one of the first times that Luke is, includes himself in the narrative. This is in Acts 16, by the way. That's a little bit of an aside. And on the, on the Sabbath day, we went outside the city gate to the riverside where we supposed there would be a place of prayer. We sat down and we spoke to the women who'd come together. One who had heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God. And he didn't go, oh, you're worshiping God? You're fine. Oh, you seem to be good. You're worshiping God. It's really the intent of your heart that matters the most. Thank you. We didn't mean to bother you. I, I need you to hear this. What did he say? He, he, well, he, the Lord does something. The Lord opens up her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized, her and her household as well, she urged them saying, if you've judged me to be faithful, if you've judged me to be true to the Lord, then will you please come to my house and stay? And she prevailed upon them. Love that story. I love, I'll tell you, I love the fact that there's these statements like save yourselves or perform these deeds or the Lord opening up her heart because, I mean, I thought Ryan was trying really, really hard up here and I thought he really good, did a really good job explaining it, but then we still wait for the Lord to open hearts, right? Like, well, I'm, I'm getting ready for this Sunday and I'm gonna try to write a really good message and, you know, like if my message is what converted you, then someone needs to stop you and tell you the gospel because it's not my words, there is this deep sense of opening a heart, Philippian jailer. We really don't have any picture of the gospel being presented. We do know that Paul and, and Silas are singing in prison. Maybe that's kind of what they're picking it up. They're singing those good old gospel hymns that are clear uh, in terms of what the gospel is. He brought them out. This is the Philippian jailer. Brought them out. Sirs, what must I do to be saved? <laughs> this is his first question. What must I do to be saved? And they said, believe in the Lord Jesus and you'll be saved. Trust in the Lord Jesus, swear allegiance. By the way, there's a new book came out that's really, really good called Salvation by, Through Allegiance Alone. And a lot of times that word faith, when it's used in the Bible, means to swear allegiance to. So believe in the Lord Jesus, trust in the Lord Jesus, and you'll be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and all who were in his house. And he took them that same hour of the night, washed their wounds, and he was baptized at once, he and all of his family. And they brought them to the house, set food before them, and he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. <laughs> That's pretty cool. The Thessalonians, um, give, give kind of a brief explanation. Acts 17, beginning in verse two, Paul went in, this is a synagogue, as was his custom. And on these three days, he reasoned with the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ or the Messiah to suffer and then rise from the dead, saying, this Jesus, whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. Sounds a lot like Acts chapter two. 
And some of them were persuaded. This is what it means to believe. They were persuaded, and then they joined Paul and Silas, as did many of the devout Greeks and not a few leading women. So there is reasoning and persuading. I love that statement. Um, well, we'll see, it, we'll see it later on in the book of Acts. Next, in a town called Berea, where we have Bereans. Now, these Jews, unlike the Thessalonians, because Paul gets into some trouble with some Jews in Thessalonica as well, he then travels to Berea. Now, these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica, not the believing Thessalonians, but the bad ones that beat them up. These Jews were more noble than the Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. And many of them therefore believed with not a few Gentile or not a few Greek women of high standing as men as well, as well as men. So we see belief coming. We have these, what I'm going to refer to as Athenian academics. Paul is now in this really high philosophical area, and Paul is going toe-to-toe. It's a very different message than what Peter preached. Peter preaches, hey, here's what David said, here's what Moses said. Paul goes, well, you have a philosopher, and he says this. Don't you think he might be onto something here? And then he brings them to who Jesus Christ is. He talks about that they need to respond to Jesus. He doesn't say, hey, you guys are smart enough. I saw all the fancy degrees on your wall. I really think as long as your intent is good, you'll be saved. No, Paul says you need to be putting your faith in the resurrection of Jesus because God has proven that on the re- on, because of the resurrection of Jesus that he will judge the world by this man. So I, 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 I recommend you, get, you, you find peace with this man that was resurrected, the king of the world. You need to be converted. And when they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. Others said, we'll hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom were Dionysius, the Areopagite, and a woman named Demarius, and others with them. The Corinthians, Acts chapter 18. And he left there and went to the house of a man named Titus Justus, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord, together with his entire household and many other Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. And then the last one I want to give you tonight before we're done is in the book, uh, or in the last, uh, the last one we'll look at is in Acts chapter 19, where he goes to a city called Ephesus. And notice how Luke describes what happens when he shows up there, beginning in verse 1. And it happened while Apollos was at Corinth that Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples. So this is an interesting take because these are some people who are kind of like halfway there. He found some disciples. He said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? They said, no, we didn't even know that there was a Holy Spirit. He said, well, then into what were you baptized? They said, John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who is going to come after him. That is Jesus. So on hearing this, and this is one of the reasons why we're beginning to talk about this question about baptism on Sunday, and we've got these cards, because all we want to do is have people have a good understanding of what the Bible teaches. And over the last 2,000 years, the church has taught many, I think, mildly and moderately confusing things about it. And so here you have these people that were kind of headed in one direction, and then after Paul explained about how all of these fit together, John's baptism, and then the, the baptism that we actually see by the church, I love this, on hearing this news, that they didn't have it all right, and that they still needed to do something, on hearing this news, um, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus, and when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. There were about 12 men in all, 
And as he entered the synagogue, and for three months, he spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the, I want to end on this, about the kingdom of God. Not about how they can get saved, not about how they don't have to go to hell, but the apostle Paul, and all through these encounters that we see here, was Paul would walk into a city and he would say, there is a kingdom. And, and unless you unless you understand who the king is, and unless you swear allegiance to him, and unless you die to yourself and you are joined